I'm Father Mitch Paco, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God through the lens of sacred tradition, but also with a focus on how we pray with Scripture. Now, of course, as we do this show, we want you to be part of it. You can send us your questions or comments by email, writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com. Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com. Or you can follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now today we'll conclude our discussion of the interaction between the Canaanite woman and our Lord Jesus in Matthew 15. But we'll also go on to another healing, this time healing of a deaf man who, like the Syrophoenician woman, is still in Gentile territory. So let's take a look at some of this. Now, of course, we're continuing to go through my book, which is called Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee. You can get that by going to EWTNRC.com ewtnrc.com, where the, it is item number 52885. And some folks are finding it helpful to have this and uh, uh, that book as we go through these posts. So you've got the notes there. That's why I wrote it. All right. So now we are continuing on with the story of the Canaanite woman uh, from near Tyre and Sidon, which is now an area of southern Lebanon, the modern state of Lebanon. And we're going to Matthew 15, verses 25 to 28. But she, the woman, came and knelt before Jesus, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. So, let's take a look at this. First, this very distressed mother kneels down before Jesus and she's in a posture of petition. She renews her plea for help. She does so directly in front of him, not just shouting from behind, but right in front of him. So it's a more personal interaction, a closer interaction. And then... Instead of simply saying yes or no, our Lord answers in a proverbial way. Now, this is fairly typical of the Middle East. I'll talk more about that today. But he uses an everyday image about taking bread from children and giving it uh, to the dogs. Now, children are dependent members of the family. They, the children depend on their parents for food. Dogs, unlike our culture, 
Unlike the way we relate to our pets, dogs were not considered part of the family. And you'll see commercials where uh, somebody is speaking for the dog because the dog really cannot talk, right? It's not a Disney cartoon or any other cartoon. The animals don't really talk. And in the commercials, they really can't talk. But you'll see the, them say, mom or dad, that's not your mom. <laughs> as much as an owner cares for a pet, they're not the mom. There was a dog that was the mom. I know, I know, I'm not very romantic. And I, <laughs> I, I love my pets. I really do. Oh, they're, they're great. And I like, like having them around the house and do everything I can, take good care of them. But I'm still not their dad. You know, I'm the head of the clouder. That's my role. Um, and with, if you have dogs, you have cats. So I have a clouder of cats, two cats, and I'm in charge. And then with dogs, you're the head of the pack. They're not an equal member. They think in terms of belonging to a pack, and you're the head. Um, that's the way it is. And in the ancient world, they de definitely did not think of dogs as part of the family. Israelites, Jewish people, generally considered dogs to be unclean animals. And they didn't really keep dogs as pets, especially if they were poor, couldn't afford a dog. Uh, shepherds might have a dog. They would need it to keep away some of the predatory animals, like the jackals and wolves and such. Um, but, you know, keeping them as pets was not part of Israelite society. Sometimes pagans had pet dogs. Sometimes you'll see that, but not too often, because a lot of them also considered them unclean animals. Um, you know, sometimes they use them for hunting and things like that. But, um, but she, as a pagan, she'd be more familiar with dogs than Jewish people are. And our Lord uses an image that she would have more likely in her culture than he would have had in his own. The woman responds, though, and she gives another proverbial statement. This is fairly typical of conversation among Middle Easterners, even to this day, using a, a proverb and answering with a proverb is not at all unusual. I'll tell us more about that later. And she answers with great humility and says, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall off of the children's table. So she's, and by saying that, she's indicating very humbly that, you know, being compared to a dog doesn't make her angry. And she's also humbly saying she's willing to accept crumbs that fall off. And at that point, of her responding with that proverbial statement in real humility and wisdom, our Lord heals the daughter. He recognizes this as faith. Now, see, again, 
how much she understood Israelite religion, we don't know. But I suspect it wasn't very deep. I mean, you know, I might have some understanding of Islam, but I'm not a Muslim, so I don't have the insider's take. And I don't understand Hindu religion from the inside, just have some outside information. That might be what she had, something like that. But she did have a humble trust in Jesus. And that humble trust was something that he accepted as faith and the daughter was healed. And this is something that we ought to consider in our own faith. We see in the book of wisdom, chapter 7, verse 30, that it says, wisdom prevents wickedness from prevailing over goodness. It says, against wisdom, evil does not prevail. That's an important principle because here you have this force of evil that is possessing this little girl. But wisdom, evil cannot prevail against wisdom. Now, this is a very interesting principle and an interesting way in which it is applied here. In her case, the wisdom was able to draw out the goodness of Jesus Christ. And as she drew out his goodness, he defeated the evil spirit. That's very important. And her daughter was, was freed. Also, there's another element we see in the wisdom literature in particular. Remember, there's a section of the Old Testament, a collection of books that we know as the wisdom books. The Book of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, the Book of Job, the Wisdom of Sirach, and the Book of Wisdom are all wisdom books. And in the New Testament, the letter of St. James is a wisdom book. And we see there that it's a very important theme in the wisdom literature is the importance of humility, especially humility in prayer. So if we take a look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, it says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he shows favor. Think about this. You know, when in the modern world we have a lot of people who are filled with scorn. And what one of the things that characterizes them is, of course, their anger at anybody who has another opinion other than theirs. Oh, how dare they. But also there is an arrogance that is part of scorn. You scorn people that you look down upon. And this is something that Proverbs 3, verse 34 says won't get you, God will scorn you, and he's way above the scorners. Okay? 
but to the humble he shows his grace, his favor. Also in Proverbs 11, verse 2, it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But wisdom is with the humble. Why? The pride think they know it all. The humble are willing to learn. That's why uh, I've heard, uh, a friend of mine is a policeman in um, Houston, and he was on the mountain police uh, division. And he was a city kid, and he learned to be a better horseman than the boys from the country who grew up riding horses. He learned to listen to his teachers. A number of times, uh, women who learn how to use firearms a little bit later in life, they may not grow up with them. And a number of people who teach firearm safety will say that women learn the rules of firearm safety better than a lot of guys who think they already know it all. That, 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 that happens in lots and lots of areas. So that's an important principle. Also, in Sirach chapter 2, verse 17, those who fear the Lord prepare their hearts and humble themselves before him. Again, that kind of humility is what this lady showed, the, the Canaanite lady. And in Sirach 3, verse 18, he writes, and this is a wonderful thing for all of us to consider, the greater you are, the more you must humble yourself, so you will find favor in the sight of the Lord. If you start to act too big for your britches, the Lord will be the one who helps to humble you. This is something all of us have to remember, as, because we're all getting greater in some areas. You get new status as an adult and your job and everything else. And we always have to ask to grow in greater humility. In Sirach chapter 3, verse 20, For great is the might of the Lord, but by the humble he is glorified. So that the, the Lord is, is very powerful, but real glorification of God comes from the humble. And then in Sirach 35, verse 21 to 22, the prayer of the humble pierces the clouds and it will not rest until it reaches its goal. It will not desist until the Most High responds and does justice for the righteous and executes judgment. This is a, a, a wonderful passage about the importance of the prayer of the humble, and it applies to this lady very beautifully that her prayer as a humble person pierced the cloud. And the, the, that person doesn't stop praying until the prayer gets to God. And then the Most High visits and does justice. That's exactly what happened. And that, that verse in Sirach 35, verse 17, truly, truly applies to this lady. And this is... Um, uh, something that we have to pay attention to, that her insightful wisdom had more of 
an effect on the Lord than the spontaneous but foolish, you know, emotional displays. That's definitely the case. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? You know, one of the things is that we should picture ourselves standing next to Jesus after he pronounced that this woman's daughter is cured. Picture that. Speak to him in that context. Imagine you're standing there right after you did this. Speak to him about the role of wisdom and humility. Especially in our society. Our society has a national epidemic of clinical narcissism. There are lots and lots of narcissistic, narcissistic people. And I'm afraid sometimes the schools have encouraged that by teaching positive self-image instead of teaching virtue. The theory is that if you have a positive self-image, you will naturally act more virtuously. But that's not always the case. Matter of fact, it tends not to be. One of the people who, uh, one group of people who have tremendous self-confidence are sociopaths. Sociopathic people have no doubt that they're right and everybody else is wrong. And they'll do whatever they have to get their way. So that's something that's very important. Secondly, you also want to note that humility is not about putting yourself down. It's not saying, well, I'm really terrible. I'm a no good piece of dirt and all this kind of thing. That's not humility. You're still focused on yourself. Humility comes from focusing on God. And as you look up to his greatness, you experience your own smallness. Not by putting yourself down, but you see how good he is and how sinful we are how great he is, how small we are. And at the same time, as great as he is, he does not disdain our smallness. But we should be willing to be more like him and receive from him. And then also something else, wisdom is not the same thing as learning lots of facts. Um, wisdom isn't about that. You can have a lot of facts, but still be a fool. And there's plenty of people like that. Instead, wisdom comes from having an ability to reflect on the meaning of data. So a lot of people with very little education can be very, very wise. Um, there, uh, one of my friends, uh, from Palestine, has had a grandmother. She's passed away now. Her name was Almaz Abu Atta. And Mrs. Abu Atta uh, was a very, very wise woman. For every situation, she had a proverb. And she knew more proverbs than her grandchildren or children learned. They should have learned it from her. But not only did she have lots of proverbs, but she would know exactly when to apply it. So for instance, when somebody had a bad uh, experience in business, 
she would say in Arabic, yeah, the cow breaks his leg, breaks her leg, and here come the butchers. In other words, when you have a misfortune, then you have all these other uh, people come to take advantage of you. She had lots and lots of proverbs like that. And even without college, I don't even know if she had high school education. She had wisdom. And this is something all of us can have. With the knowledge we have, we seek to reflect and gain wisdom and to do so with humility. And what I would do as you finish up praying over this passage is that you take time to pray the anima Christi, the soul of Christ, sanctify me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, body of Christ, save me. Make that prayer. And do so asking God for wisdom that comes from your relationship with Him. All right, we're going to take a little break and we're going to come to another miracle that our Lord does as He is in this pagan territory. So please stay with us. Let us now go to the next passage. Now, this won't be from the Gospel of St. Matthew, but I'm going to go to Mark chapter 7. But it's part of the same journey because both St. Matthew and St. Mark mention our Lord being in, from, going from Galilee over to the uh, Lebanon, basically, to what is today modern Lebanon. And he did that, as I mentioned last week, because our Lord had had a dispute with the uh, scribes and Pharisees. Uh, you, again, you see it in Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20, about being clean, um, washing hands, and our Lord says that real cleanness comes from the heart. And then in Mark 7, verses uh, 1 to 23, same event. And then in both Gospels, right after that, our Lord, the, the, the tension had, a, had risen up so much, He goes north to Lebanon, northwest to Lebanon to let things cool down a little bit. Um, that, and one of the reasons for that too is He knows He's not supposed to suffer and die in Galilee, but down in Jerusalem. So he's not going to let the tension come to its head while he is in Galilee. So that's why he goes away to let things calm down a bit. So as I mentioned last week, our Lord went first to the area of Tyre and Sidon, which is southwestern uh, Lebanon today. And um, uh, while he's there, he exercised the demon from uh, a Canaanite woman's daughter. But then 
he goes from southern Lebanon east to a region that the Roman general Pompey had called the Decapolis. The Decapolis means ten cities. Deca is ten in Greek. Polis is a city. And this was a region, a very artificial region, because there weren't even always ten cities in it. But Pompey wanted there to be a balance of power against the Jewish people. So he established this entity, artificial entity, for the, the people of the Decapolis um, to balance out the Jewish people. And our Lord goes over to that Gentile area to the east. It would be in modern-day Syria, and Western Syria, and in Jordan, modern Jordan. That's where the Decapolis would be located. Uh, he avoided going through the Jewish territory, you know, skirted around the north of Galilee, and just stayed in that area. And it wouldn't be just the Pharisees. He also was dealing with tension with Herod, who, as we heard earlier, had killed John the Baptist and had heard about Jesus and was afraid Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. So he's avoiding all that. Now, something that we should keep in mind here, that as our Lord goes into Gentile territory, he is already establishing his authority. He had established some authority by casting out the legion of demons in the Gerasene demoniac. And we talked about that some weeks ago. And then he also, you know, is at cast the demon out of the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman's daughter. And now he's going to go on further in this Gentile territory, and people will be bringing him a deaf man who has a speech impediment. And he will show um, this authority over that kind of illness as well. But it's going to be also a point that the people show Jesus faith. They already are starting to have some faith in him. Now, the, the crowd doesn't you know, the, the, the crowd, first of all, asks Jesus to lay hands on the man. And he does a number of steps. First, he takes the man away from the crowd, takes him aside. And he wants to heal him away from everything. Our Lord is not looking to be some sort of showboat guy that, you know, wait a second, wait a second, everybody gather here, watch me, I'm going to get this miracle. No, he doesn't do that. As I mentioned, you know, about the Canaanite woman having humility, so does our Lord. Second, he is going to be very intimate and act symbolically with this guy because he takes his fingers 
and puts them on the man's tongue and in his ears. And this is, you know, that's a pretty intimate act. I mean, you don't usually go up to somebody and put your fingers in their mouth. Um, you know, that, that, that would be unusual. Um, but he's going to uh, touch the two ears and the tongue. It's a very intimate sign. And he even takes spittle from his own mouth and puts it on his fingers to put on the tongue of the man and in his ears. So it's going to have this symbolic sense. Um, the apostles used oil when they anointed people on their mission. Our Lord uses his own spit so that his spit actually becomes something of a second-class relic. A lot of people don't think of it that way, but that's what it is. And that's a much more intimate interaction. Third, he prays. He looks up to heaven. And as he looks up to heaven, he sighed or groaned. He can translate it either way. And this is a term sometimes used when a woman is going into childbirth. You see it used, for instance, in the Greek translation of Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 31, to refer to childbirth. Or it's also used in combat when people are fighting to the death. That's used in Ezekiel 24, verse 17. When men are engaged in a fight, and well, I think women do it too, you know, there's a lot of grunting and just, you know, just those kind of noises. That adds to the, the, the strength of the fighters. And it's also used when Job is suffering, you know, with his diseases. The Psalms use the same word frequently, um, especially in laments. And that's probably the background, especially the Psalms. Our Lord loved the Psalms and quotes them open, uh, often. And then he says to the man, be opened. After doing that sign, his verbal prayer is be opened. So he has symbolic prayer with spitting and putting on the tongue and the ears, and then verbal, be opened. So both sign and word are how he does this. And St. Uh, Mark even gives the transliteration, the Aramaic transliteration of be opened, efatcha, efatcha, uh, be opened. Patah is the word to open. So efatcha is the Aramaic word for it. And that, that was, it was, People in the Hellenistic world, the Greek-speaking world and Rome and all that, they liked when, ooh, when there's a miracle story or something, to hear foreign words, they thought that was cool. Um, and it's also something that we should note here. Healing impediments of speech and hearing come from a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35. In Isaiah 35, verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So our Lord is also fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And he is doing this even among the Gentiles, just as he had uh, taken care of 
casting the demon out of the Syrophoenician woman's uh, daughter. Now, this is something that we use in the rite of baptism. In the Roman rite church, uh, the rite of baptism has a prayer called the Ephata. You know, that, that the priest will say, he'll put his fingers on the ears and on the tongue of the candidate for baptism and said, be open. And it's not praying for physical hearing and physical speech. It's rather praying that their ears would be open to hear the gospel and their mouth would soon be open to teach the gospel. We want every baptized Christian to hear the gospel and speak it. And now, most of us Catholics and many of the Protestants listening too are already adults who've been baptized. And we should read these words ourselves and picture ourselves in private with Jesus, with him saying to us, Ephatra, be opened, be opened. And we want him to give us a grace, a gift. We ask Jesus to open our ears, even as adults, to hear the gospel. Open our mouths so that we can speak the gospel. This is something we should do. Ask our Lord to touch your ears to hear his word and to hear it deeply, not just to physically hear it, but also to let it enter deeply within our hearts. And then ask him to touch our mouths so that each of us can speak the words of his good news in our culture. And what you may want to do is think about this. Talk to our Lord. Ask him, Lord, what is still blocking me from hearing your words? And what is holding me back from speaking your words? And ask Jesus, you know, you know what, what do I do about this? And, and what do you say to him about the blocks that you might have to hearing his word? Well, I don't like it. I don't know if the word of God is relevant to me today. Maybe the commandments need to be more relevant. We've changed culture. Nowadays, you know, fooling around, living together before marriage is pretty acceptable. It's kind of normal. So maybe we just have to change the commandments of God or something. Is that a block? What is it? You know, ask, talk to him about what is blocking you and what's blocking you from speaking his word. What would Jesus say to you about those blocks? How would he address you about them? This would be something that you might want to say. And again, I would encourage you to conclude by praying the Anima Christi, the prayer, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me, passion of Christ, strengthen me. Make that your prayer and, uh, and conclude after talking about this, okay? All right, well, we'll stop there, continue on next week, but we have a caller. Hello, Sally? 
Hi, Father Mitch. Hi, where are you calling? Are you calling from Michigan? I am. What part? <laughs> How are you? Okay, well, what's your question? I have a kind of a three-part question. I'll try and make it brief. Um, I know Christ said, I think it was Christ that said, there would be a new heaven and a new earth at the end of time. Yes. And I'm wondering if that means that the earth will still exist and we will still live on earth in a heaven kind of like atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And oh, also, um, okay. was Jesus a man before earth was created or was he just like a spirit, like the God, the Father and God, the Holy Spirit? Because there were still three in one, I'm assuming, for all eternity. So I always wondered, was Jesus, I know he said the word was made flesh, so then, but then he also said he was made in his image and likeness. So it kind of confuses me whether he was a spirit or, or he oh. was a man. Okay, let's take a, stay with me here, Sally. Let's stay this one part at a time. First of all, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. You know, part of our faith, you're Catholic? Yes. And you know how on Sunday you say the creed every Sunday? Yes, absolutely. I'm actually a Maronite Catholic. Oh, do you? Yes. Okay. Well, well we say the creed every day in the Maronite liturgy. And in the creed, it says we believe in the resurrection of the dead, right? Correct, yes. That means our body will be raised up physically. It'll be glorified. It won't be the same old body. There'll be a certain amount of the clunkiness and the proneness to disease and the aging process. That'll be all transformed. But we'll be raised from the dead. And our body will be glorified. And that gets to your second question. Jesus, our Lord, was raised from the dead, right? On Easter? Yeah. And because, uh -huh. yeah, because he was raised from the dead, he was physically alive. Remember, he could eat some bread and some uh, fish. Yes. And they could touch him. Yes. So that his, his body is glorified. Now, it's not just merely resuscitated. Lazarus was resuscitated. He had the same old body. And later on, he died and was buried. In fact, he died a martyr on the island of Cyprus. But he, but he would die again. Jesus is raised from the dead. His body is glorified and so his human soul, his human body, and his divine person, his divine nature are one, and he is raised up. Now, he's still in, you know, uh, with the Blessed Trinity. You know, he's right. still one with the Father and the Son, but not right. as pure spirit, but as God made flesh. He never ceased to be in union with the Father. Does that right, help? Yeah, but before before we were made, before the earth, you know what I mean? Before there oh, was yeah. Earth was... Then he had no body then. Right. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. He, okay. he only became flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's right. when God so... took on flesh. Okay, because, because God said he sent his son, so that's why I wondered... Well, he wasn't a male at the time when he sent him. He sent him as a son then, correct? Mm -hmm. Or was he still Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Right. Even. And, and that the word son, you know, is 
the, the, the best way to describe their relationship. You, you see in the, in the Gospels, for instance, the Gospel of St. John, chapter mm -hmm. 1, Jesus is called the Word of God made flesh. Right. He's also yeah. called later in chapter 1, the only begotten Son of God. So okay. sonship shows that he has the same nature as the Father. Just as, do you have children? Yes. Were any of them born little monkeys? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't so. <laughs> I'm going to go with them. They may have acted like monkeys, but they were really yeah. human beings, right? Yes. And this is something that they, they, because it's your children, your sons and daughters, they share your nature. Yeah. And not a monkey nature. So right, um, this, that, that's why he's called son. He has the same nature as the father, but he's also distinct from the father. So the father is the speaker and he is the word of the father. So it shows a distinction. So there's both a distinction from the father, but the same nature as the father. That's what's going on. And then he took on human nature when he oh. was in the womb of Our Lady. Okay, and yeah. then his body is raised up, and he keeps that human nature forever. And this is anchoring in history that we too will be raised up like he was. That's, that's the hope. And in the new heavens and the new earth, our resurrected bodies will be in a resurrected world. And St. John tries to describe it in the book of Revelation, you know, as streets of gold and all this. And it's, I'm sure it's as good an explanation as he can give, but, you know, it, it would also be limited compared to the reality. It'll be even better than he could describe it. Right. Okay? Right. Oh, thank you so much, Father Mitch. You're so welcome. Have a wonderful Lent. We have another question, this time from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? Hello, Father. I'm from New Jersey, Burlington, New Jersey. Great, great. Good to have you here. And what can we do for you? So I have a question that is twofold. Um, my husband and I were going through a transition in life where we are moving into that phase of life where our children are grown and they are living their own lives. Um, and we just wonder, how. what do you recommend for us to redefine our vocation that we were called to, right, as married couple, to raise a family, mm -hmm. and as we enter this new phase in our lives? And also, how can we encourage our adult children to live a life of faith and mm -hmm. love of God, mm -hmm. especially when they're building their lives during these difficult times where our faith and our way of life is very difficult because we're attacked almost from every area. Yeah, a couple things. First of all, I suspect you are not able to say, I told you kids to straighten up. Those days are gone, aren't they? Correct. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that, you know, you treat, you relate to them as an adult to an adult. They have their own households and they have their, they're developing their, their way of working with their spouses, right? And their spouses come from one kind of family, yours come from your family, and 
Every new family has to work out how to live together as spouses, working through their issues. And there's a limit to what you can do to tell them about how to live with their spouses. That's something they have to figure out, just like you did, right? Now, a couple things you can do. Sit back and be quiet and watch and listen and observe. And every so often, when it seems the right moment, say some things that, oh, you know, this is something here. And if you talk too often to them, they'll just turn you off. But if you say, if you sit back and watch and say, you know, uh, I noticed that, you know, your, your kids are running around the house breaking all your stuff. You might want to think about another way of disciplining <laughs> or something. You know, I mean, you have to pay attention to what's going on in their lives. But, um, you know, uh, I was talking to your little Johnny and he didn't know that there are sacraments, let alone know all seven. Uh, why don't we go to church together and start, and, and I can help with some catechism if you'd like. Or, again, you have to figure out the situation, uh, but look for those little moments. And also, you know, the kind of presence that you give your grandchildren can be payback presents. There's always, there's nothing like giving your grandchildren a drum set. That's a payback present. But then there are wisdom presents where you help them to understand things better. Um, th this is, you know, uh, where you have to use your own wisdom to watch, analyze, and then make a comment at certain moments. And then just, and don't say, now, do you, re do you recognize that I'm right? Don't do that. Don't do that, no. Let it sit, and then later on, say, oh, they, they might say, that was actually a good idea. If you push it too far, they'll, they'll bristle, especially your son-in-law or daughter-in-law. But if you just sort of say, oh, this might be something you do, gently, that can work. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think this is something. Um, uh, here's an email. Uh, let us now go, oh, oh I know one, um, from Tara. Hi, Father Mitch. I am finally returning to the Catholic Church after years of time spent in the New Age and the study of tarot cards. I gave up reading tarot cards when I came back to the church recently because of the catechism's teachings on fortune-telling. Good. Recently, a book has been released called Contemplative Tarot where it uses the tarot as a contemplative tool with and not a divination tool. Can this be done or are the cards by their nature evil? Uh, Tara. Um, Tara, uh, I would have nothing to do with tarot cards or, or even contemplating them. I don't think that is a good idea at all. And I would stay clear of that entirely. I, I, 
saw that book, uh, you know, about the uh, contemplation, contemplative tarot, I, I don't understand why that was written. I think, I suspect it was a way to try and reach out to people who were using these new age things uh, and occult practices. I don't think that's the way to do it. I still think of that, uh, I, I would consider that a tool of the other side and I, I would have nothing at all to do with the tarot card. Um, just as you probably were, are aware, but 60% of the possibilities that are revealed in tarot cards are negative. They're usually, you know, destructive. Um, you know, there, there's no room for that in, you know, our Christian life. Read the scripture, pray your rosary, uh, read from the lives of the saints. That's plenty to do. And meditate and contemplate sacred scripture. Hear the word of God. Don't contemplate tarot cards. Okay. And then we also have an email from Sarah. This is a good one here. Uh, Dear Father Mitch, my son uh, wants, is wanting to go to the Air Force and is currently taking the steps necessary to apply to West Point Military Academy. I'm so proud of him, but as a mother, I worry for his soul. What are the church's teachings on killing in war? Um, you know, first of all, I'm wondering why he's going to West Point instead of going to the Air Force Academy. But, you know, it might be a very, very good reason for that. Um, uh, Army certainly uses some uh, Air Forces. Um, the, the other thing I would say here in terms of your question about war. Um, the killing in war uh, is something that is a necessary uh, evil. You, you hate to do it. I hope, I hope. Um, but it's something that is necessary for the protection of the nation from enemies. Now, first of all, you know, the, the country and we as voters in a de, uh, democratic republic have to be very, very alert that we never want to enter into any unjust war. We don't enter into war in order to conquer other people and take their land or their possessions. That, that's a grave evil. So we may not uh, go ahead and enter into unjust wars. Wars have to be justified uh, by you know, being attacked or by protecting people who are being attacked. Um, it, it has, uh, when somebody's an unjust aggressor, any nation has the right to protect itself from unjust aggression. And soldiers have the right to defend themselves in those kind of wars. Hopefully those will be very rare. Um, we've, the problem is we've been at war with, with terrorism and we've gotten into some other wars. Uh, we always have to stay very alert. That's why we as citizens in a democratic republic 
have to be on top of what's happening in a lot of the news so we understand. The situation, for instance, in Ukraine is very uh, terrible, terrible. And we have to manage through that. There are risks with China and all this. We have to be very alert to uh, what's going on and make sure we don't become unjust aggressors, but rather that we, uh, but we will defend ourselves. And that's what he, I, I'm sure you, what your son is trying to do, is get into the military in order to deal with that. So that would be something that you know, is fully justified uh, when it's a just war. If we try to take over some other country, then he may, uh, I would say that he would have to resign his commission and get out of the military. You know, if it's an unjust war, we may not take part in it. That would be wrong. So these are the things that he has, also has to study about uh, and learn more about just war and unjust war. Uh, catechism will be very helpful to him. Okay. All right, then we have something from Sue. Says, uh, hello, Father Mitch. I'm a retired Catholic school teacher and have learned much from you over the years. I've often wondered why the church uses the term memorial when you referring to mass. I think sometimes the memorial sometimes, um, I, I think sometimes the word is even used in the prayer after communion or maybe in the liturgy of the word. I'm not sure uh, where I noticed it. We know the Eucharist is not just a memorial service, so it seems like the wrong word. It seems like people who are not Catholic, possibly even interested in the church, would think we're just remembering the Last Supper. God bless you and all you do, Sue. First of all, our Lord uses the word in memory of me. And the word memorial in um, Leviticus 5 and in Leviticus 24 are terms used for a type of Old Testament sacrifice. And our Lord uses that word, memorial, because it's the kind of sacrifice that the Mass is. It's not a Thanksgiving offering or a guilt offering or a sin offering, but it's a memorial offering. It's a classification, and that's the term he uses. So that's why we use it, okay? Also, I want to remind you that um, we have just a few, uh, about a minute left, but I'm planning to lead a pilgrimage to Poland May 8th to 18th. And uh, you'd be welcome to join me in the footsteps of the Polish saints. If you want more information about this, go to mateotravel.com, M-A-T-T-E-O, mateotravel.com. And we will visit uh, some wonderful places associated with John, Pope St. John Paul, Maximilian Kolbe, St. Faustina, and the others. So we'd love to have you join us for that trip. Um, all right, but we are out of time. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, we can bring you this program and all the other programs that we have here only because this network is brought to you by you. 
So we ask you to please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you, and thank you. Thank you.